0: As being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, time to say goodbye to this book for a little while. It's been a very, I think, beneficial, challenging at times, but worthwhile journey through this book of Ecclesiastes. I know I've learned a ton just from um, just from my own personal study of this book as we've gone through it. And I have uh, I've been deeply encouraged by how real this book is. I hope you have been as well. I love how God doesn't sugarcoat life for us but gives it to us 200 proof and tells us the truth and doesn't try to try to whitewash it at all. And that's what I think this book has done for me personally the most. You know, our culture values as one of the highest virtues being open-minded. That is being open to a diversity of opinions and possibilities and to be closed-minded is to be an intolerant person, it's to be a hostile person, it's to be a threat to society. But really, if you think about it, there is no lasting virtue in being perpetually open-minded. I mean, as the saying goes, you don't want to be so open-minded that your brain falls out. The purpose of being open-minded is to consider life as it is so that you can eventually close down on something solid, isn't it? In his novel, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis describes a man from the suburbs of hell who has spent his whole life seeking the truth, his whole life. The man wanders somewhere near the borders of heaven, where by the gracious invitation of God, he's invited to enter. But the Spirit warns him. The Spirit says, I can promise you no scope for your talents, only forgiveness for having perverted them. No atmosphere for inquiry, for I'm going to bring you to the land not of questions but of answers and you will see the face of God. But the man's not ready to leave his quest just yet. He wants to study some more before he accepts anyone else's conclusions. So he says, Quote, We must all interpret those beautiful words in our own way. For me, there's no such thing as a final answer. The free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through our minds, must it not? Listen, God's spirit says to the man, once you were a child, once you knew what inquiry was for, There was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and were glad when you found them. Become that child again, even now. Yet, sadly, the man refuses, and he says the following. When I became a man, he says, I put away childish things. The conversation suddenly ends when the man remembers that he has an appointment. He makes his apologies. And he hurries off to his discussion group in hell. The goal of being open minded, of inquiry, of quest, of trying to find the meaning of life is to eventually find it. And that has been Solomon's goal in Ecclesiastes. He is writing in these final words to sum up all that he has said. And to help us close with his view of life. And to take up his view of life that he's been describing in this book as our view of life. And to live in light of it. He's not merely interested in endless speculation and ongoing questions and ongoing discussion groups. He's aiming for conversion, decision, and change. That's what he wants. He's a preacher after all. So I want this morning to close with a lot of application for us, but also a sort of summary of what we've seen in this book. So first of all, let's look at the content of Ecclesiastes. We're going to look at five different aspects. Three of them are going to come directly from the passage, and two of them are going to be broader. So we're going to kind of book in the sermon with more broader considerations, and the middle is going to be this passage in particular. So first, the content of Ecclesiastes. Just to quickly review where we've been since August. It's been a long time. We've been in this book several months. Except for a brief break in December, it's almost been exclusively Ecclesiastes. That's been our steady diet as a church. Chapters 1 through 6 is really can be summarized as Solomon's investigation of life. He is investigating life. He's trying to figure it out. He pursues education. He pursues pleasure, he pursues possessions, he pursues accomplishments, he pursues labor. And in that quest, throughout that quest, he wrestles with what is wise and what is foolish. And he arrives at a discovery in chapter 7. And his discovery is, we can't figure it out on our own. That to try to discern life under the sun, apart from God is a foolish endeavor. Solomon discovers that our wisdom is limited, that we're creatures of a creator, and therefore we must live life with humility. He also acknowledges that we live in an unjust and broken world, the tragic reality of the fall of man, and therefore we must have a realism to our lives. The reality of suffering, the reality of unjust treatment, the reality of death. He also says over and over again in this book that there are no guarantees and we don't know what will happen. So this mystery and uncertainty characterizes life in this vain world. He also says that we need to come face to face with our mortality We realize we are going to die, that we're going to be judged, and we need to get to know our creator. But in the midst of all that, in the midst of his calls to humility and reality and uncertainty and mortality, he also reminds us that we are to enjoy this life that God has given us under the sun. We are to enjoy our families. We are to enjoy our work. We are to enjoy the gifts that God gives us. And we are to do it all the more. With greater zeal because we know all those other things are true as well. And so his conclusion is, after his investigation and his discovery, I've sought to figure it out. I can't figure it out. God has it figured out. And so he concludes that the problems under the sun are solved above the sun. The problems under the sun are solved above. Above the sun. And that's really the content of Ecclesiastes. Secondly, let's move on to the source of Ecclesiastes. Where is his teaching coming from? And this is where we come to his epilogue, his ending words here in Ecclesiastes. And Solomon tells us where his teaching is coming from in verses 9 and 10. He says, and he's speaking in summary form, and he's, he kind of takes a third person posture here, and he says, Besides being wise, The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and he uprightly wrote, he wrote words of truth. So he acknowledges his wisdom. God gave him that wisdom. We know that from first Kings when God makes Solomon when Solomon asks for wisdom and he receives that wisdom from God and he's made the most wise man in the world. He's wise. God gave him wisdom. He knows that. But he also says that he sought words of delight. We see that in verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight. And he's referring to himself as the preacher here, which he refers to himself as in the beginning of the book as well. So he sought to find these words of delight and he weighed them he studied them he arranged them with great care notice what he says in verse 9 so he f- seeks these tr- he seeks these words of truth and then he arranges them with great care he's written this book on purpose in the way he's written it for a specific purpose which we're going to get to see so he says he uprightly wrote Words of truth. That is, he had an integrity about him when he was writing this. He wasn't trying to be crooked or perverse. And he taught the people with knowledge, verse 9. So he was careful. He was deliberate. He was purposeful. And his goal was to teach people with knowledge the words of truth. How do we know that what he was saying was truth? What is truth? Well, if it's just coming from Solomon's experience and Solomon's mind, I mean, his experience and his mind is no greater than our experience and our minds. His is one perspective. We have our own perspective. Unless the words that were flowing from him were not just from him, but were actually from God. And he says that in verse 11. He says, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. We'll come back to that whole phrase in a minute. But this is the important phrase for now. They are given by one shepherd. And notice in many translations of the Bible, that S is capitalized. Because that shepherd is not merely Solomon. That shepherd is the shepherd of Israel, God himself. And so what Solomon is saying is, not only have I sought to find truth, And weighed it and studied it and arranged it with great care and taught people with knowledge. But the things that I am teaching, the things that I am writing, the things that I am seeking, the things that I am organizing have come from God. They have come from one shepherd. Here we have the doctrine of inspiration. The idea that the Bible was inspired by God through the personality and experience of men. That God took up Solomon's personality, Solomon's experience to write his infallible, inerrant word. And that's what we have in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is a text that underscores the importance of this book coming from the finger of God. And the mind of God and the heart of God, not just Solomon. And so as one commentator says, to read Ecclesiastes is to hear the shepherd's voice. We should be very careful to listen to him and build our life on what he is telling us. Now, this has huge application in a couple of different areas in my mind. First, it has application to what I'm doing and what you hear week in and week out from pastors. This is a very important text, not just for Solomon and his preaching, but pastors and their preaching. I better make sure and you better make sure that the things that are said here and that you allow to enter into your brain are coming from the one shepherd and not just me or whoever else is here. I have no authority in and of myself to say anything. The only authority is in this book and to the degree that this book is rightly opened and this book is rightly interpreted to that degree you are called to submit and listen. And that's it, because it's God speaking. And so, but notice, a couple things we learn about the pastor or the preacher's task here is that they are to study. They are to seek. They are to spend time in God's word. And they are to arrange it and weigh it. Measure out what would be helpful. What should be the proper emphasis? What's my goal here? What's, how should I arrange this in a helpful way so that it's understandable and palatable to people? I mean, preachers that, I I turned on the radio this morning and I heard, you've heard it, ranting and railing preaching. That is not biblical preaching. Someone who rants and raves and yells, that's not the spirit, folks. The spirit is in the words that are being said, not the volume or the anger or the tenor of the person. Don't assume that great passion equals accuracy. Or God's blessing. And don't assume that dull, pedantic, boring, systematic, theological, dense preaching is any more blessed than that. The goal is to arrange it, to study, to weigh, to do it with great care so that we might teach in accord with the word of truth. That's the goal. That's the end game. That's the win. And it's got to be coming from this book you say, well, I'm not a pastor. I mean, I don't have any call to preach. I don't have any call to stand behind this and talk to the church about God's word or preach God's word. I'm not a spiritual leader. Oh, 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 wait, 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 wait. Any parents in here? This is another area I think that's a, this, this is, that this relates to. And that's an application to, to us as parents. We are the primary spiritual leaders of our children. And in order to make that truth helpful to them, we need to arrange it. We need to do it with care. We need to be deliberate about what we're doing with our children and teaching them God's word. And we need to do it from a life of integrity. Right, uprightly, Solomon says, writing words of truth, speaking words of truth. It's just what Deuteronomy 6 calls us to do, right? Let these words be on your heart and then teach them to your children. And that's that's the goal. We We want to understand God's word. We want to arrange it in a helpful way. We want to teach it faithfully. And we want to leave the results to God. That's what we want to do. But notice that you're called in whatever sphere God has given you, with whatever responsibilities that God has given you, to handle his word well and to handle his word carefully and to do it with a view to teaching and instructing others. So that's the source of Solomon's teaching of Ecclesiastes. It comes from God. This book is from God, not just from the mind and pen of a very wise man. Point number three the experience of Ecclesiastes. So we've looked at the content of Ecclesiastes. We've looked at the source, where it comes from. Now we want to talk about how it's to be received. What is Solomon's goal in writing Ecclesiastes? Well, again, verse 11. The words of the wise, and I think that's primarily a reference to this book of Ecclesiastes. The words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. So here's this idea of a goad and a nail. And I want to look at those one at a time. What's a goad? A goad is a tool that a shepherd would use. Solomon's got shepherding on his brain here when, he, when he's writing verse 11. A goad is a tool that a shepherd would use. It's a sharp stick that spurs a stubborn beast to keep moving. It's like a cattle prod or a jockey's whip to keep the horse in line, to keep the horse moving. It's designed not to injure the animal, but to inflict just enough pain to get its full cooperation. And that's why Solomon has written Ecclesiastes. It's not a flattering image of us, is it? We have to be goaded. We have to be prodded. We have to be stuck sometimes to get unstuck. Here's what Phil Riken says. Ecclesiastes does the same thing for people of faith. Although its words may be pleasing, they also inflict a certain amount of pain. They are goads to the conscience, making us uncomfortable enough to turn away from sin. They are a stimulus to the soul, steering us back onto the right spiritual path. Think of Ecclesiastes then as God's divine cattle prod. The preacher's words push us not to expect lasting satisfaction in money, or pleasure, but only in the goodness of God. They steer us away from foolish rage and mocking laughter. They spur us on to patience, contentment, humility, and joy. When we forget about God, the preacher prods us to remember our creator. And the moment we think that we'll live forever, he pokes us in the ribs and reminds us that we're going to die. Hasn't that been your experience of this book? It's been my experience. I felt goaded, stuck, jabbed. And loved by my shepherd. And I hope you have as well. That's been one of the purposes. Is to poke us and to inflict just enough pain to get us to remember our creator. He also uses the images of nails firmly fixed. And that is, I think, consistent with the idea of a goad. A nail firmly fixed is a nail that's driven in. And that's what Solomon's been trying to do. He's been trying to drive in his view of the world, his view of what the mess is, his view of the solution, and his view of how we live in light of it. And he's been trying to firmly fix that nail and drive that truth deep into our lives. Which is why he's come back to similar themes over and over and over and over again. He hasn't done it haphazardly, though. He's done it intentionally, seeking to weigh it and arrange it with great care. But the end goal is to drive this truth deep into our lives. And so if that's God's goal in giving us the book of Ecclesiastes as the one shepherd, then when we are poked and prodded and challenged by God's word, how important is it that we welcome that correction? How important that we welcome that correction? correction. We need to see it as God's gift. It's one of the gifts that Ecclesiastes talks about, the gift of God's ongoing correction to us. Here's a really convicting question. Think about this. Having spent all of these months in Ecclesiastes and having been goaded and challenged and having a firmly fixed nail driven in, Week after week after week, has our study of Ecclesiastes made any discernible difference in your life? Any discernible difference in your thinking? Any discernible difference in behavior? Any discernible difference in your understanding of the gospel or the world in which we live? I'm not expecting catalytic, catalytic change that you know from. Um, from this is radical thing. I mean, that happens and God does that in different seasons of our lives, but I'm just talking about that. We have been exposed to some reality in this book. And I trust that by God's grace, you can find spots in your life. If you were to think long enough saying, yeah, it's almost subconscious. I almost don't even understand, but, but I think the fruit will, is going to be born out of this study in my life in the days and months to come. It's been very helpful to me. So that's, the, that's the experience of Ecclesiastes. The experience is not meant, it's meant to be a happy one. It's meant to be a pleasing one. But it's meant to get there through a lot of goading. <laughs> and that's why some, sometimes studying this book can feel like you're getting pricked and prodded a lot. And that's Solomon's goal. And that's God's goal. And we should welcome it. Number four, the purpose of Ecclesiastes. What's the ultimate reason For all of this arranging, all this writing, all of this studying, all of this seeking to teach us the word of truth, all of this goading, all of these firmly fixed nails given by this one shepherd, what's the goal? And this is where Solomon takes the gloves off in verse 12 through 14. He takes the gloves off. He's no more Mr. Nice Guy. He's no more Mr. Cool Analytical Cynic. No, he just wants to throw some dust in our eyes. He says, life's sick. Life is sick. And we are sick. And we need an emetic. An expectorant. We need painful and embarrassing as it may be. We need to vomit out of our souls everything that's destroying our lives and will eventually lead us to endless emptiness. And that's why he litters, verse 12 to 14, with one command after another command and a reminder of judgment. So he wants to give us some medicine. He's going to take the gloves off and he's going to throw some, throw, throw some sawdust right in our face. And it makes us wince a little bit. He says that we need a new authority, a new master, and a new lifestyle first new authority. Verse 12, my son, beware of anything beyond these. That is the collected sayings that he refers to in verse 11. Beware of anything beyond these of making many books. There is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. So what's he saying here? He says, beware. He's warning us against something. He is warning us against the uninspired study of uninspired wisdom. That is, look out for those who would seek to give you other explanations to the mysteries of life than the one I have given you. That's what he says. Beware of going beyond these, beyond what I have written, beyond the vision of life, the understanding of the universe, the understanding of why the world is the way it is, the understanding of the solution to life. Beware of going beyond that. There will always be, get this church, there will always be people seeking to solve the enigmas of life and offering us escape routes or escape routes from our experience of emptiness. There will always be people seeking to do that. In doing so, they are going beyond the inspired words of the Bible and we're called to not listen to them. Listen, there is no end, and you know this, with over a million books being published every year. There is no end to the books espousing the wisdom of men. All you have to do to get a publishing deal these days Is offer a weird solution to an ongoing human dilemma. That's it. Just be weird. Say something novel. The books that Solomon is speaking of are books that try to explain away the emptiness of life apart from God. Beware of such books. Beware of such teaching that seeks to explain away or solve for us the mysteries of life or seek to get us out of the emptiness of our experience without God in the picture. So what would some of those books be? Well, I'm not going to give you titles, but I am going to give you themes. How about books that promise a quick fix? How about those kind of books? How about books that give us a path to help us figure out life? How about books that posit a do this and you will receive that simplicity? How about those kind of books? Ecclesiastes says you can do all the right things and your life be wrecked in an instant. How about books that believe that life's problems are caused by something outside of us and life's solutions are found inside of us? How about those books? That's contradictory to Ecclesiastes, where life's problems are found here and life's solution is found out there. How about books that cover up or gloss over the painful realities of life and just sugarcoat it? How about those books? How about books that promote blame-shifting and victimitis, giving us excuses for why we're not responsible or accountable for our lives? How about those books? Solomon says, don't waste your time. It's a wearisome task. It's a wearisome task. I mean, we have books being sold, brothers and sisters, by the thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. Whenever something new hits the press or hits the Kindle store and gets shot out, promising some quick fix, some easy solution, some three steps, some do this and you'll get that listen, don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. Now I love to read. You all know that about me. This is not an attack on reading. Now he does say of the reading of many books, there is no end and of that much study is weariness to the flesh. That's true. I've got stacks of them and I look at them. I'm like, no way I'm getting to those in this lifetime. It is, it is, but it's not a discouragement to, to read, but it is a balanced perspective on reading, isn't it? Because so often don't we do that? If we encounter a problem, what do we go to? I got to find a book. 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 No, you need to find a God. You need to find a God, not a book. Now God is in this book. We don't need to ban this this one. But so often we turn to, well, what did somebody else say? How can now not to undermine the value of worldly books? There are some books that are very valuable. They have, they in fact correlate with God's word and they don't even realize it. So there's wisdom to be gleaned and common grace to be gleaned, but don't spend all your time in that literature. Don't drink that in what we need most is. Are nails that are firmly fixed. What we need most is the Bible. What we need most is, is, is truth. The words of truth and books that cohere with the words of truth. That's what we need. That's what we need the most. And so it's a balanced perspective on reading. It's saying, look, read, we should be readers. We Solomon did that right. Verses nine and 10. He said, I studied, I worked hard. I arranged, I wasn't slack on the job. I worked at it. I read, I studied. We should do that. But we should not think that just mere reading or mere study is going to solve anything. Because mere reading and mere study that does not bring us to a shepherd is vain. It's vain. Now let me make an application to our younger people. who Especially those of you who have been raised in the church. There is going to come a day where you are going to leave this place and you are going to go out into the world somewhere. Possibly to college, possibly right to the workforce, possibly somewhere else. And you are going to experience worldly wisdom. You are already experiencing it. You don't have to grow up in the church to not experience it. You grow up anywhere and experience it. It's in our culture. But you're going to get exposed to people who offer you solutions to life's problems that have nothing to do with God. And they're going to sound really attractive. Can I encourage you to press into those realities without just opening your mouth and drinking it down? Can I encourage you to actually get inside of that way of thinking and press it to its end and see if it's more satisfying than the Bible? Don't let the thing that lands on your ears as something that stimulates you be the end game for you to where you're just like, well, that sounds better than anything I've ever heard. I just believe it. No, press through. Have convictions and understand why you believe what you believe. And not just because somebody said them to you. And that goes for the Bible as well. Press into the scriptures. Yourself. Own it for yourself. So he wants us to have a new authority. That is the collected sayings. The book of Ecclesiastes. The rest of God's word. As our, as our authority in our lives. He also wants us to have a new master. Verse 13. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Here's where he's taking the gloves off. And he just said, look, I'm done talking. Okay. I've talked a lot. We've thought a lot. We've wrestled a lot together. Let's bring it down to the, to the bare minimum. I'll put the cookie on the bottom shelf for you. You need a new God and you need a new lifestyle. We need a new God and we need a new lifestyle. We need a new master. So he says, fear God and keep His commandments. That is similar to what we heard last week. Center your life in God and do exactly what he tells you to do. Let God define reality. Let him set the trajectory for your joy. Let him be the solution to which you turn to rescue you from the emptiness of life. That's what it means to fear God and keep his commandments. Let him define reality for you. Let him set the trajectory for your pursuit of joy. And let him be the solution to rescue you from the emptiness of your experience. That's what Solomon's doing. And that's what it means to fear God. It means to hear what he says and to give it more weight than anything else that anyone else says. To hear what God says and give what God says more weight than what other people say. He says, fear God and keep his commandments. It's almost like two sides of the same coin. And he gives two reasons why we should fear God and keep his commandments. The end of verse 13 and verse 14. The end of verse 13 says, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, this is a very confusing phrase. You know, it, and if you have the ESV version, which is the, the version of the Bible that we have on the back um, that we use for preaching and, and in our times of God's word together... It's footnoted, that phrase, this is the whole duty of man, says, or the duty of all mankind. This phrase is, like so many in Ecclesiastes, somewhat difficult to understand. The NASB, the New American Standard Bible, translates it, this applies to every man, or this is the duty of all mankind. The NIV, the New King James Version, and the ESV, which is what I'm preaching from, says this is the whole duty of man. The New King James has, this is man's all. And the Hebrews, even more wooden and literal, this is all the man. This is all the man. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is all the man. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, it can mean three things, possibly. And I'm not sure which one they mean completely. All three of these are taught in scripture. Here we go. First possible idea. To fear God and to keep his commandments is what it means to be a man. That would apply to the New King James translation or the Hebrew. This is man's all. This is all the man. That is, if you want to see what is, what will bring man to his all or what is all of man, it's to fear God and to keep his commandments. That is, to fear God and to obey God is what it means to be truly human. To be a man is to see God for who he is, accept our limitations as his creature, and obey him. Those who are most human are those who revere and obey God most fully. Okay, that's taught in Scripture. Also, another possible idea is to fear God and obey God is man's whole duty. That's like ESV translates the whole duty. It's that is it's the whole responsibility of our lives to fear God and to keep his commandments. That's our responsibility before God, to love God, to worship God, to center our lives in God and to give ourselves to his purposes, doing all that he says. How un-American. How un-American. Quite the goad, isn't it? Another one. To fear and obey God applies to every man. In other words, this is the universal obligation of everybody. To fear God and keep his commandments applies to everybody. Atheist, agnostic, Buddhist, Muslim, whoever you are, you're responsible before God to love him, obey him, fear him, center your life on him. Because guess what? You are. And everyone is. Why? Why? Here's why. And here's an application to mission and evangelism. Okay? We have common ground with everybody we meet. Because everyone is born within the confines of a binding relationship with God, even if they reject it. Say, I don't believe Ecclesiastes. I don't believe that book is God. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. That doesn't change the fact that God is in a relationship with you. Think about this. because Some of your faces just changed on me. Everybody. Here's, 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 I'll step back. One man was asked by another man, do you have, do you have a relationship with God? His answer was, every person has a relationship with God. It just depends on whether it's on good terms or not. That's absolutely true. Everyone has a relationship with God. We can deny it, we can suppress it, we can ignore it, but we have a relationship with God. The question is, is that relationship on good terms or not? That's the question. So when we meet someone, and we're going to meet more of them in the days to come, who reject Scripture... dismiss it outright, who call it foolish. Should we put our Bibles away, tuck them away and ignore it? Well, they don't believe it. What can I do? They have a relationship with God. Speak the truth to them in love. Don't be rude. Don't be quarrelsome. Don't fight and pick an argument, but speak God's word. Nobody has to claim to believe it for it to be binding on them or true for them. God may bless it in time. So fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. That is either that's what it means to be a man or that's man's whole responsibility before God or this applies to every man. That's what this book is aiming for. To get us to center our lives in God. Why? Verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He's going to bring everything under the scrutiny of his perfect judgment in the end. So let's live life in view of that day. And this frees us up to enjoy our lives. In conclusion, let me talk my last point here. The fulfillment of Ecclesiastes. The fulfillment of Ecclesiastes. Because this book leaves us with a cliffhanger it leaves us, if we're thinking well and studying well, it leaves us with this sort of emptiness inside. He says, look, the end of the matter is this. All is, when all is said and done, you are to completely center your life in God and you're to do exactly what he tells you. God's going to bring you to judgment. And if we're reading that letter correct, or reading this book correctly and taking that in to our own hearts, we leave this book with just as much emptiness as when we started. Because we start the beginning of the book by pursuing pleasure, pursuing achievements, trying to find out life solutions on our own. And we leave this book being left with a God with whom we have to do. And that's why this book is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is described in Luke chapter 11 as this, something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. And he's here. And he's the one shepherd that's being referred to in verse 11. Listen to Ezekiel 34:23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. So we have this prophecy that a servant of David will be raised up as a shepherd over God's people who will feed them. What will be the result? Ecclesiastes 37:24, "My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes." So there we get this servant David who's going to be a king shepherd. And the people, as a result of having this shepherd in their lives, are going to walk in accordance with God's rules and be careful to obey his statutes. So the result's going to be obedience. It's going to be fearing God and keeping his commandments. So who is this? Who is this one shepherd that Ezekiel's talking about? Who is this servant of David? Who is this king? Well, when we get to John 10, we find out. I am the son of David stands up and says, I am the good shepherd. The Lord Jesus Christ, the true son of David, not just Solomon, the one greater than Solomon. And he says in chapter 10, John 10, 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So if it is true, and it is, that God will bring everything to judgment then it's desperately important for us to make sure that we're going to be found righteous on that awesome and momentous day. And guess what? The very shepherd that wrote this book to shepherd us toward himself pays the price to remedy the problems in the book. The only way that we can truly fear God and truly keep his commandments and truly be ready for the judgment day with great and awesome anticipation of joy is if we have a good shepherd who lays down his life for us and that's what we have in the lord jesus christ he came he laid his life down on us laid his life down for us on the cross he absorbed the wrath of god that was due us for all of our sin much of which has been exposed in this book of ecclesiastes And he delivers us from the fear of judgment because he takes in our place our judgment for our sin. And then in in grateful, joyful, humble faith and trust in him, we keep his commandments. John 15 verses 10 and 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And that's where the joy is found. So, brothers and sisters, we're not just living under the sun, S U N. We're living under the sun, S O N. And that makes all the difference. That makes all the difference. Praise God that Jesus' victory triumphs over life's vanity. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we get to end this study looking to your son, the one shepherd that you have given us who laid his life down for us that we might be reconciled to you. Thank you that we end this book looking to him, being reminded of our profound emptiness apart from him. And we thank you that in response to what he has done, and by your grace, we can do exactly what you've called us to do in this text, which is to center our lives in your great saving love for us and follow you all of our, with all of our heart for all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.